Welcome to Film Fam, inspired by true events. I'm Heather, married to Brian, and mother to Zoe. Hi, I'm Brian, husband to Heather, father to Zoe. Hi, I'm Zoe, daughter to Heather and Brian. We're the Greys, and we're your Film Fam, and we are still doing this intro in case you don't know our names or our relationships. We don't want you to think we're all siblings or cousins or... Maybe um, you guys are my grandparents. Because <laughs> you're my old. Grandfather to Heather. <laughs> Second cousin once removed to Zoe. Right. You, they need to know the relationship. You're our child. Zoe. Yeah, yes. Little baby yes. Child. Were you asking for confirmation? <laughs> yes. Today we are talking about Frankenstein. Ooh. I'm so excited. <laughs> I love that you both did that. Um, yeah, we're going to be talking about the true events that inspired both the 1931 movie, the original, and the novel, 1818, I think. Again, it's a 1931 sci-fi horror film directed by James Whale, W-H-A-L-E, Whale, like the like ocean like shark. creature, <laughs> like shark. <laughs> This that is not our only callback to Jaws. We're going to have tonight. We're, by the way, just you know, this is primarily a Jaws podcast, and any other movie <laughs> we talk about is just tangential. It's all connected to Jaws. Also, can I clarify a point? The genre of horror was not actually a genre when this came out, but we do recognize it as a horror film. That's that's right. That's right. It was a few years after that they were like, "Oh, I guess we need to create a genre, and it's going to be called horror." <laughs> This was just called a movie, right? It was just a creepy movie that they had only done once before in the movie Dracula. Frankenstein's the second uh, talkie horror film that came out. Dracula was the first and just came out earlier the same year. It did well. So they're like, all right, let's make another one. Uh, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So directed by James Whale, starring Colin Clive as Frankenstein, the scientist and Boris Karloff as the monster slash creature. I'll call him either the monster or the creature. I, I prefer monster because creature to me means the creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, I'm I'm noting your preferences. But he's the creature in the script. <laughs> Although one version called him Adam, but I, I think we can steer clear of just giving him a name. Yes, we, are, we will. So James Whale, um, before Frankenstein comes out, he's already a well-regarded director. He came over from London when um, movies in Hollywood were making the transition from silent to talkies, and they needed someone. They were like, I guess we need directors that know how to direct dialogue and talking. So they went to stage directors, and that's what James Whale was. He had been a stage director in London. He and a bunch of British actors, and they all came over around this time to start working in Hollywood. They'd just come out with Dracula earlier that year. And like I said, it had been a really big success and they wanted to do another monster film. And so James looked through the catalog of works that they could draw from and chose Frankenstein, which is the tale of a sympathetic monster slash outsider who is unloved by his creator. James Well, I think, had an affinity for this story because he himself was an outsider. He grew up outside of London 
in a mining town, um, kind of a lower class mining town. And when he went to London, kind of remade himself as a gentleman. But, you know, there's real class differences in London that are very sticky. So other people who were of the class he was trying to enter into were kind of like, no, 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 you don't really. Although in, in America, he could be an English gentleman. He was also openly but discreetly homosexual. That is another way that he was an outsider his whole life. At the time, it was even a criminal behavior to be homosexual in England and in America. In London, he had been engaged to a woman, but he did not marry her. And in the U.S., he met uh, David Lewis, a producer, and they lived together for most of the rest of his life. And so even though it was illegal to be gay or illegal to have, at least to have gay sex, and it could definitely ruin your career in Hollywood if it was public, still, like, if you knew him and you were at all kind of, like, sophisticated and knew about this kind of stuff, you knew he was gay. Okay, so but he was able to draw on being engaged to a woman and then not getting yeah. married. Yeah, you see where I'm going here. So he was discreet about it, but he wasn't in the closet. James Whale, he made, I just want to let you know, in case you guys don't know, he made four of the essential horror movies. He wow. made Frankenstein in 1931, um, a movie called The Old Dark House, which is a kind of prototypical haunted house movie. Uh, the year after that. Then he made The Invisible Man with Claude Rains. Oh. And then Bride of Frankenstein, which many consider to be his masterpiece. And I'd love to talk about that in a future episode. So Whale, he was a powerful director um, working with Carl Lemley Jr. Uh, at the Universal Studios. And he had almost total control of his films. So he was the director, but also the, like the producer. He cast them. He guided set and costume designs. So when you see uh, any of these movies that I'm talking about, they're his films. Like, they're very much him, and he is the, the idea behind them. Whale was inspired by German expressionist cinema. If you've seen, like, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or Fritz Lang's Metropolis, that's German ex expressionist cinema. And they use oversized angular sets and, like, dramatic light and shadows to create this kind of mood that's a lot darker and different than what people were doing in America at that time. And Whale also kind of borrowed from Metropolis all the sci-fi gadgets that they use to kind of populate the... Oh, is that the stuff mad, that was in the lab? Yeah, the mad scientist, the idea of them, the look of them. Oh, I see. I just had a, a, a forbidden memory re-enter my brain of being... Oh, God, what, like 10 years old? And for a, a class project after I read Frankenstein, I had to make a trailer for it. Uh -huh. And we yeah. we set up in the basement. Dad, you were Victor Frankenstein. <laughs> I remember that. And, and we got just like pots and pans and like coils and anything we could that looked, you know, like those kind of... We need to of... link to that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That needs to be an <laughs> I don't know extra if I want people to see podcast. my... Um, Little like voiceover recording of 10 year old Zoe reading the trailer for Frankenstein. <laughs> I feel like they do want to see that. Why is that forbidden? Did you block it out? Is it a recovered memory? I might have. I had a lot of interesting projects as a literary minded homeschooler. Like when I when I made a Emily Sockinson, a sock puppet who recited <laughs> Emily Dickinson poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great, yes. Hey, shout out to Online G3. That's where a lot of your projects came from, right? Ooh. So Whale also brought 
to the film his own real life experiences of being an outsider. He was a homosexual in a society where homosexuality was not only criminal, but like considered a crime against the institution of the family and like a crime against God, right? So in the opening scene of Frankenstein, we see Victor, or in this movie, he's called Henry Frankenstein, uh, the scientist, and his assistant, Fritz, creeping around on the outskirts of a cemetery watching a funeral. And they're there to do some grave robbing and to collect body parts for Frankenstein's experiments. When the funeral's over and the grave digger leaves, um, Henry and Fritz, like, they creep in the graveyard and they pass this huge crucifix grave marker. And you get the sense that what they're doing, what this is the very first scene, is like they're, they're doing something that's like unholy, that they're going against God somehow. It's a very kind of creepy scene of them digging up this dead body under, basically under a crucifix. We find out that Henry left, Henry Frankenstein left his fiance, Elizabeth, on the day, the day after they got engaged. And he goes and shuts himself up in his laboratory slash windmill that he lives in or that he's working in so he can work on making a man, um, making life out of dead tissue. Gay. (laughs) (laughs) And he's obsessed with it to the point of like committing crimes, like grave robbing and directing Fritz to steal a specimen brain from uh, his old college professor, Henry's college professor. We'll get back to the brain theft in a bit. And Henry Frankenstein, he won't be put off from his experiment. His father is really upset that he won't come home and get married. And his fiance is worried and his best friends also like trying to talk him into coming home. And his old professor, Dr. Waldman is like, he's a lost cause, but I guess I'll try to help him get back in line and back to his normal life. And Frankenstein's like, you guys are on my way. Why can't you just leave me alone to do my thing? And so he does his thing and he and Fritz, they put the body parts, the monster on the table and they pull it up into the lightning storm and all the equipment is all the, is like blinking and buzzing and bubbling and stuff like that. And the lightning strikes and then it's alive. That whole scene happens. And, you know, Frankenstein's monster is born and he's this like sweet little creature, sweet, huge creature with the strength of 10 men <laughs> and uh, no one to love him. When you use the metaphor in this way, it makes me actually really approve of everything that Frankenstein does that I didn't originally, (laughs) but when you say that it's about being gay, now I just instinctively have to be like, "I that's tight. I approve. I didn't say that, but I was just about to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I inferred. Yes. um, There's this really touching scene um, when they first bring the monster on screen uh, Henry's fiance and friend are gone from the windmill laboratory and it's just Henry Frankenstein and his old professor and the creature. And uh, Henry says that the creature has been kept in the darkness of the cellar the past few days since he was born. Basically, he's been in the darkness of the cellar and this is the creature's first time like out and about in the windmill. And the creature's sitting all awkwardly on this chair with like his arms at this weird angle because his body is all at weird angles. And suddenly uh, sunlight like shines down from an opening above him, probably the same opening that like his body was raised through when he got struck by lightning. Yeah, I bet that is. And it shines down on him and, and the creature just can't believe what he's seen. It's like, it's so beautiful. And he he's raising his like trembling hands to the sunlight 
And then he stands up his whole body and he's just like reveling in the warmth and the sun on his face. And he's like reaching towards the sun. And, and then Henry Frankenstein's like, no, no, just sit down. I want you to just sit down. He's just not paying attention to like what this moment is meaning to the creature. He's just like, "Why? Well, I, I told you to sit. You're standing. What are you doing? So the monster like moves his hands really emotively, like beseechingly at Henry, kind of I like saying like, I want something like, I, I don't know what it is I want, but it's like something about this light and this warmth. And I want this please. And, and Frankenstein's just like, no, no, just sit down. Just do what I'm telling you, sit down. And it's really sad and really well done. And this is like one of the first inklings where you really have to be wondering who the monster is in this relationship, because the creature does not seem violent or, you know, bad. And, and Henry's just really not giving him any kind of uh, attention. Yeah, there's this whole debate about it. Should we call the monster, for, you know, like, because it's been called Frankenstein, partly because of Bride of Frankenstein. After that came out, people are like, okay, well, he just named it after himself. Some people are like, it's named Frankenstein. Some people say it's Frankenstein's monster. Uh, I would like to contribute to the discourse by saying that I think that Frankenstein's monster is the doctor. <laughs> He's the true monster. But I'm pretty sure the monster is named Bruce. <laughs> the monster is not named Jaws. <laughs> okay, that's a callback. Now, so yeah, this scene, it's very, it's very moving. And just before this scene, Henry Frankenstein is sitting there and he's telling Dr. Waldman that his creature is good and that they just need to be patient and give it time to learn and grow. And, and Henry is feeling happy and he feels successful about what he's doing. And Dr. Waldman tells Henry that the brain that Fritz stole was a criminal brain. And Henry just at that moment, he just looks like really uncomfortable and kind of shaken after the the doctor tells uh, Henry that Henry's interactions with the creature becomes like very cruel. So he went from like being willing to commit crimes to make this creature. But when he's told that the creature may be like intrinsically bad and that there's something wrong with it, something wrong with its brain, he's like much more willing to let the creature be tortured and killed. Right. So like if so. he hadn't been told that, who knows how it would have ended up? Because also like criminal brain, I'm using air quotes for the podcast uh people who cannot see my air quotes is such a weird like does that imply that you cannot learn from a childlike state to be a good person if you're in good circumstance i mean there's there's obviously a lot to unpack well there, and i think that james well interrogates that too because even if he he does have the quote criminal brain he really doesn't behave badly until you know he's forced to defend himself and the only crimes that he commits in this movie or the next are mostly either out of self-defense or on accident because he's like a yes. child that doesn't yeah. know how to engage with the world. And actually, those are like the most heartbreaking scenes. The, that one's in The Bride of Frankenstein, I think, but where he unintentionally hurts people and it's just a... It's just a not knowing your own strength, you know? Well, he did in this one, in the scene with the little girl. Uh, he unintentionally drowned her. Um, right. Well, yeah, so it, it seems like Zoe already picked up where I'm going with this. I think you can easily read the creature in Frankenstein as Whale's homosexuality or his gay self 
that just wants to be accepted and loved, just wants to live out of the darkness of the cellar, out in the sunshine, just wants to learn about the world and himself in safety, and instead he's met with hatred, disgust, and violence. And I, there's, of course, there's other ways to view this movie, but I think if you watch it with this in mind, it's actually uh, very clear. Yeah. A pretty obvious way of looking at it. Yeah. So, I mean, after Henry and Dr. Waldman, they try to kill the creature. Henry goes back home to his fiance and his father, and his father's toasting everyone in the house to a son of the house of Frankenstein. And like the mandate is to like procreate. And Henry just looks like really uncomfortable. And at that's the point where the monster, well, the monster was about to be dissected while still alive by the professor. And he kills the professor and escapes the windmill. And he shows up at the house and he attacks Elizabeth, the fiance, and then he flees. And um, Elizabeth fainted while she's being attacked. And when she wakes up, she's like in shock. It's like when she saw what Henry's monster was like, she went in shock and she couldn't speak anymore. She could only like stare and be in shock. So at this point now, everyone knows about the monster. Like Brian said, he accidentally killed a village child and then ran from the scene. And now there's an angry mob with pitchforks hunting him through the hillside. And Henry Frankenstein, he joins the angry mob against his own creation and he's leading one of the groups it's like he was committed to this creature before the professor told him that the creature had a bad brain and that needed to be put down like a wild animal right and that can kind of i mean that's kind of if if we're reading deeply into this metaphor it's like if you're if you were gay as a little kid in a universe where that was not an issue and it was just something that you were excited about and wanted to explore and then someone told you like no there's something intrinsically wrong with you for wanting that i mean then that's where the internalized homophobia if that's him joining the mob you know it's like he didn't he didn't think it was a bad thing until someone told him it was and maybe it wouldn't have had to be if no one had told him it was but like then it became tainted and he became hateful towards this thing he this part of himself or the thing that he created and towards his own self because it's a destructive force in his life but like it might not have had to have been you know right and he's he's leading he's not just joining in on the mob but he's leading he's taking uh, control of the idea that no no i uh, i'm going to kill this thing that i created maybe by doing that, redeeming himself in the eyes of people who see him or see the monster. Right. Like, am I, if I am the one to hate it the most, then we can all forget that I'm actually the thing that it was born of, you know? Right. We see that a lot in real life. Right. But think about, this is one of the things I think is like so smart is that James Whale, I mean, he was openly gay. He didn't hate himself. He wasn't in the closet. He wasn't trying to kill that part of himself, but he was trying to show people maybe with this reading of it that that's bad. Like you don't want to do that. Sure, he'd probably seen it. He probably had friends and, and saw how destructive it can be. Well, he very much had friends. Um, Colin Clive, uh, who played Frankenstein, uh, was a bisexual man. And in The Bride of Frankenstein, uh, and also the same actor was in this the old dark house uh, the actor who plays pretorius who's kind of like the very archly gay guy in bride of frankenstein uh he was very openly 
homosexual guy who was always like played as like a gay coded character. And in the old, this old dark house, Charles Lawton, he was a gay man and, but he was married to Elsa Lancaster who played the bride of Frankenstein. She was the bride. So all he, all these people, all his friends were gay and he was putting them in all of his movies and they were, I mean, out or not out. Apparently Colin Clive was not out and was like kind of driven to alcoholism. Well, that's just more proof to me that this is a very valid way to read this movie is because I think some people can be like, even if you're a gay director or writer, that doesn't mean everything you do has to be about being gay, which as a gay director and writer, I kind of take issue with, especially if you're an artist who is surrounded by other queer artists if you're in the industry trying to be out in the 1930s like i if it were me there would be no way that that isn't a major part of my work (laughs) so in the end sadly the mob actually wins they trap trapped in the burning windmill the creature's like screaming and pleading and trying to escape and and they set fire to it and it's like that's his main fear. That's why he was tortured by uh, with Fritz. And he is seemingly burned to death in the windmill, although we get a sequel and then many sequels after that. <laughs> but it's the very last scene right after that that's very interesting as well. Um, Henry Frankenstein, he is back home, but we barely see him. He We just see him through a doorway. and He's lying on a bed. Elizabeth is sitting on the chair next to him, and we see them from a distance. And the scene focuses on the maids of the house and Henry's father celebrating that, like, Henry's back home, he lived. And the father says, to a son, to a son of the house of Frankenstein. And that's the happy ending, is that Henry came back to have his heteronormative life and to procreate. But it just actually doesn't, we don't see him happy. We only see his father is happy, and other people in the right. household is happy. And we just moments ago watched the creature that we all felt for die this horrible, painful death in a very sad way. So I don't think we're actually supposed to be happy. I don't think we're supposed to be like, yay, this ended well. And most people didn't feel that way. Uh, The audience actually felt so much empathy for the creature that it said that Universal received countless letters meant for Karloff offering him help and friendship. Oh, I'm so touched. I know. Are you going to cry? They saw They're like writing letters to the actor like i will be your friend i'm sorry (laughs) that you're so alone (laughs) and boris karloff said it was one of the most moving experiences of his life that is so sweet so yeah in real life james well did not get married and procreate he lived quietly as a gay man and he made four essential universal horror movies and he is the author of the version of frankenstein that most people are familiar with and all the the inspiration for all the versions of the monster that came after, like Young Frankenstein and the Munsters and Rocky Horror Picture Show, Frankenberry cereal, you know, all of that <laughs> is is his Frankenstein. I was thinking about Rocky Horror when you mentioned the scene where they're digging under the crucifix. The the I'm just realizing that I bet the opening scene to Rocky Horror is an homage to that, where they're walking through the cemetery and there's all these crosses and then like put the heart on a billboard and it's just this you know again a juxtaposition in a much more clearly not even queer coded just queer way in that movie of 
juxtaposing like Christianity, Christianity with um, like debauched or immoral acts, you know? Well, totally. And I actually feel like Richard O'Brien, who wrote Rocky, was even even more brilliant than I already think since I've been doing this research. And I want to watch Rocky Horror again with this kind of eye. Like, can we do a, Rocky a Horror critical. on this podcast? A hundred percent. We was can. It and based we on a true story. Are we going to introduce? Uh, I don't know. That, that inspired it as a true story. I'll have to see. I'll have to see what was up with Richard O'Brien. I, I think. I feel like this is like one of the movies that people would write in on their reviews and say, <laughs> "Do something. Uh, do something fake about that." <laughs> so. After this movie, James Whale's at the top of his career. He makes those four more movies. He makes some other movies. But just 10 years later, he is pushed out of the industry or leaves it voluntarily. It's a little complicated. Um, It may or may not have been about his sexual orientation. Um, The book Celluloid Closet thinks it was, but it's not uh, definitive. And then 16 years later, after a series of strokes, he commits suicide in his swimming pool. Oh, that's sad. It is sad. And hopefully he had a good life for at least a big portion of it. Um, And he actually had two nicknames. Um, I don't think he liked either one of them. One was, I think, the Queen of Hollywood. So, And the other one was the Monster Man. I love it. That could be very flattering, being the monster man. Isn't that a callback to Frank Mundus from yes. our first episode? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had two guys now. I just like who, monster men. We like monster men. Um, Shape of water. <laughs> so I also, I want to do a quick shout out to Peggy Webling, who wrote the stage adaptation that James Whale uh, based the movie on. She was the first woman to... At, uh, adapt Frankenstein for the stage. And it was from the stage plays that a lot of the differences came from. Um, her play was called Frankenstein and Adventure in the Macabre. Her version and other stage versions um, from that time, Victor's name was changed to Henry. And the plays introduced an assistant named Fritz or Igor. And that is when the creature became mute. So that wasn't uh, James Whale's invention. It came from stage okay. plays. All right. So now, 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 now we get to get to Mary Goodwin Shelley Ooh. and the true events of her life that inspired the original Frankenstein story. And oh boy, this shit is bananas. <laughs> I love it. B-A-N-A-S. It's also really S. It's also kind of sad. So be prepared. Uh, I don't know if I need to include a trigger warning for child death and mother death. Suicide. suicide yes yeah. so mary's parents were both famous in their own time her mother mary wollstonecraft wrote a vindication of the rights of woman and her father was a political philosopher anarchist and novelist and they were both radicals who like lived their radical philosophies and when their daughter was born in 1797 they planned to raise her as a political radical as well But 11 days after giving birth, Mary Wollstonecraft died of an infection introduced to her body by the doctor's unclean fingers, removing her placenta because it didn't it didn't expel naturally. And he just had to pull it out and she ended up getting an infection. So Mary 
even though it wasn't Mary's fault, she didn't like, quote, kill her mother. She spent her life dealing with the idea that it was her birth that killed her own mother, who was a very renowned and like singular famous woman. And this tangle of like birth and death and love and bodies and graves becomes like a central theme in Mary Godwin Shelley's life and in her writing. Her father even taught her how to write by having her trace the letters of her mother's name on her gravestone. Wow, that is on her gravestone? Oh, wow. Zoe, there's so much gravestone action <laughs> going is... on in her life. Well, I like the words gravestone action, but not used like that. Well, throughout her life as a child, she would go to the graveyard and just sit on her mother's grave constantly that's like where she hung out and read her mother's books and journal to herself and like write right and they they had coffee tables made out of gravestones they would eat, uh, use them as plates they would eat off of them they were just, <laughs> gravestones were just everywhere they were a major uh, decorative element of most graveyards in fact as someone who has hung out in cemeteries for fun like that is the most romantic shit and by romantic i mean like Capital R. Yeah. Literal. (laughs) Romantic. So William Godwin, he remarried, and then Mary spent even more time in the graveyard because she didn't like her new stepmom. So she was like the original goth teenager, literally. Hell yeah. (laughs) So there's strife in the home between Mary and her stepmother, but there's also, and I think you're going to like this, so there's also like really interesting people always visiting because they were like political radicals. So like famous poets and writers and politicians. And our friend, uh, Aaron Burr, actually hung out with the Goodwin family for a while. (laughs) Oh, not our good friend, Aaron Burr. (laughs) Did he shoot first? Uh, Because, you know, he was a feminist and he wanted to raise his daughter with the ideas that uh, Mary Wollstonecraft had about the rights of women and their education. Don't we all? Yeah. You succeeded. (laughs) Oh, thank you. So... Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who wrote Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, was a friend and would come and hang out. And also a young radical poet who had recently been kicked out of school for atheism and disowned by his father for marrying a 16-year-old girl, Percy Shelley, would come to visit. I have really mixed feelings about those things. Like one of them, (laughs) I think it's cool. (laughs) The other one makes me not love Percy Shelley. Yeah, there's a lot to feel those conflicting emotions about with this guy. I'll go on. In May of 1814, Percy Shelley, he's 22 years old and married, and he's visiting the Godwin house, and he and Mary would go on walks together, guess where? To the graveyard. That's their favorite place to hang out. And they would talk about politics and art and ideas. And then in June, they declare their love for each other on Mary's mother's gravesite. I mean, that's how it goes. And then they have sex there on the grave. I, how how do you actually she had extensive journals so that's probably how you know but like for real that's the story she hooked up and lost her v card with a married poet on her dead mother's grave i mean i gotta say like mad respect like <laughs> like i don't know if it's cool for him to be cheating on his wife with uh if he was 20, uh, like 17 year old but from her point of view i mean get it girl Get it on Get your mom's it. grade if you want. Like it's <laughs> <laughs> committed to the lifestyle of being She's committed. a goth hoe. That's Sorry. it. We are cremating in this family from now on. Oh, 
Oh gosh. Thank you for going there, Brian. Okay. Okay. So (laughs) badass proto-feminist free love radical William Godwin was really not so much into these ideas when they started to be applied by his daughter. Uh, He was against their relationship. And so in July, the couple, they fled to Europe and they brought Mary's one year younger stepsister, Claire Claremont with them. And did they did not bring Percy's wife, Harriet, who was <laughs> pregnant with his child. That's um, really rough. Also, I got to say, I immediately felt bad about calling Mary Shelley a hoe, and I really want to retract that <laughs> statement. <laughs> Thank you. It is retracted officially. Okay. Let me enter it's it in. a positive in. way. Maybe we can avoid a slander suit from the Shelley uh, uh, estate. Yeah, or maybe the people who come and punch you out for talking shit about Mary Shelley. That I, group. I'll take it. That's fair. Any goth has the right to do that. I'll punch my own self. All right. This, Percy, Mary, and her uh, stepsister, Claire, they travel to Calais, Paris, uh, said by donkey, mule, carriage, and on foot. They went through France to Switzerland. Okay, so what is a donkey mule? <laughs> by donkey, <laughs> comma, mule. Okay. Can I interject upon this point in the timeline? Yes. No, I just want to say that... Um, Mary Shelley was still being goth and also with Claire Claremont, who went with them for some reason. She decided to to tag along, and they were just, like, telling each other horror stories and trying to freak each other out as hard as they possibly could. And they were like, we want to start an association of philosophical people where only women are in charge. And, like, it's like Claire was with them along the journey she becomes an important player later which is why i'm noting it i'm glad to hear that i'm glad to hear that because i feel like it would have been worse for mary in some ways if it was just her and percy (laughs) like she needed another woman there although it ended up not always being great we'll get to that right oh yeah so as they traveled though this was still like the the little cute time between mary and percy they they read and they wrote and they kept a joint journal. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, That's pretty cute. It's cute, and let's just it's not just even, cute. No, yeah. Let's just cute. let's say it's only cute. We're going with cute. <laughs> no violation so, of privacy there. They, tr- I think she also had other journals, perhaps, but they also kept one together. Okay. Then so they cute. traveled down Germany and the Netherlands, and then they ended up back in England by September. So from July to September, they're traveling all over Europe, and then they come came back because they were out of money, and Mary was pregnant. You know who I bet this was all really cute for? Percy Shelley's wife that he was still <laughs> married to. Right. Yes. What about their shared journal? <laughs> it was just letters they were sending back and forth. Were they though? It was just Maybe. her writing in her journal, being like, well, I haven't imagining what me. he would say. <laughs> I'm sure you're just pining over me. I feel bad that you're so alone over there. (sighs) You know, free love. Yay. So they come back in September. Mary's pregnant. And this is where things, you know, forewarning, this is the sad part. In February, Mary gave birth to a two-month premature baby girl. They named her Clara. And two weeks later, baby Clara died. And Mary was only 17 at that point. And she writes in her diary uh, leading up to it. She writes, nurse the baby read, nurse the baby read. Until the 11th day, she writes, I awoke in the night to give it suck. 
It appeared to be sleeping so quietly that I would not wake it. And then in the morning, find my baby dead. You're right. That is sad. Yeah. A few weeks after Clara died, Mary wrote in her journal, dreamed that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and we rubbed it by the fire and it lived. I awake and find no baby. I think about the little thing all day. So already you can kind of see like the ways that could have impacted her later her story. Sure. I never thought about that. Yes. So Mary, she's deeply depressed by the loss of her child. And like you're saying, Zoe, here's that tangle again. Birth, death, love, bodies, sex, graves. It's all so tangled for her. And she felt guilt over her mother's death. And also like a sense that her mother abandoned her and abandoned it by her father over her relationship with Percy. And now while Mary was like deeply grieving and depressed, Percy was spending more and more time with Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, and probably having an affair. But he wasn't like officially cheating because they believed in quote free love. But like with your stepsister right after your baby died, that's pretty shitty. In my opinion, in my little humble opinion over here. So Mary blames her father and Percy for abandoning her. And she blamed herself for like the death and destruction that she felt like her love and her body causes. So again, birth and death and love and graves and bodies, it's all, you can see where it's coming for Mary Shelley. I think the true events that inspired Frankenstein are Mary's own grief for the loss of her mother, the love of her father, and Shelley's support. And Sure. If William Goodwin and Percy are Victor Frankenstein, then Mary herself is the monster. Um, and I, I think the creature's anger is, is Mary's anger. Like something in Mary, she feels like kills, killed her mother, killed her baby, drove away her father, and like can't engender like a solid commitment from Percy Shelley. But like, shouldn't they cling to her anyways? Shouldn't they love her anyways? When Mary finished Frankenstein, she published it anonymously because she was worried that people would not be able to deal with the idea that a woman wrote it, especially like such a, like a teenager. And one critic said it was horrible and disgusting and that the author must be mad. And it was quite a scandal when the authorship was revealed. That's when she wrote how I, that a young girl came to think of and to dilate upon so very hideous an idea. And she said it was a dream, but Maybe that's because like the male audience was not ready for like a monstrous woman and a, a woman, especially a young woman who could create this darkness and horror. Right. People didn't want to think that a young woman uh, would, would think that way. That's not what they're supposed to be thinking about. But it must have not just been her because like, yes, like her mother died, her baby died, but so many women died in childbirth. So many women had their children die. So this was something that many women went through. And it's one of the reasons this is a feminist book and that women have loved this book for so long. Um, one critic wrote that Mary, once it came out that she was the author, they, he wrote that she had a diseased imagination, which stepped out of all legitimate bonds. I got to say, as a kind of goth, I hope she was like super proud of those reviews because <laughs> as a as a chick who liked to hang out in cemeteries, having like these male critics write about your well-regarded opus, like, man, you have a twisted mind. Like, 
yeah i mean like isn't out of isn't that sort of a victory in some ways to prove like yes i'm a woman and i can think of these fucked up yet very emotional very intellectual things yes i hope she did think that so to end this part here that same critic said this is a quote from him he said the writer is we understand a female but if our authoress can forget the gentleness of her sex there's no reason why we should and we shall therefore dismiss this novel without further comment (laughs) right well it wasn't dismissed it's a foundational gothic horror. It spawned the concept of the mad scientist. This is where it came from. Wow. And the concept of something being like Frankenstein sewn together from disparate parts. And it's also considered one of the first science fiction novels. So fuck that guy. And <laughs> yay to goth Mary Shelley. So Ooh. that is my, that's my part of it. And I guess that leads us into uh, Brian. Wow. What should I talk about? something that inspired Frankenstein. I I, I figured of all the things that I could talk about, I think the most interesting thing to talk about in in any given situation is the weather. (laughs) Oh, the weather. Yeah. I mean, what's your go-to? What's your go-to? You're in the elevator with somebody. Hey. Do you talk about having sex on a grave or do you talk about the weather? I'm going to be talking about the weather. And uh, I I mean, it, it seems now this is the third time I've done this. And Every time I want to talk about something, I realize, no, 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 I have to go way back in time to set up how I'm talking about the thing. And it, it reminded me of uh, Watchmen. At the end, Rorschach is like, nothing ever ends. Uh, and I'm starting to believe nothing ever begins. <laughs> Do you need some way back music? Uh, yeah. So let's go back to the 6th century CE. Oh my gosh. Oh, like way back. <laughs> Is this Settle that movie, in. The Way, Way Back, is about this? I think needs a lot this? more. <laughs> Go do that for a few minutes. Yeah. yeah, settle in because we're going way, way back. So what happened in the 6th century CE was what ended up being a, a century uh, cooling event, a, uh, an extreme weather event that started very specifically in 535 or 536 CE. Uh, and it's called the Late Antique Little Ice Age. Aww. That is adorable, <laughs> and I would purchase a late antique little ice age and put it on my mantle. Late antique little ice age is the name of my Arctic Monkey cover band. <laughs> uh, uh, so th- th- this this little ice age could have been uh, caused by a comet or meteorite, but uh, the high levels of sulfates in the soil point very very strongly to volcano. Uh, and scientists are never certain about anything; they will never say. This happened. It's a fact. I'm certain about it. They're, they're always like, all the evidence to date points toward this. And Scientists. it was not just a volcano, but the largest volcano event uh, that anyone has been able to discover in the course of humans being human, uh, which makes it very uh, a very recent example of this. Because even if you just say civilization, you know, that's uh, maybe 15,000 years ago. And this was about 1,500 years ago. So pretty And it recent. inspired Frankenstein. <laughs> and yeah, and, and, and then they wrote Frankenstein. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, it was so big that nobody knows where the volcano was. Uh, it didn't make it into history. Uh, nobody who saw it happen reported on it. They died. They were all dead. They were probably all dead. Or it happened somewhere where they weren't writing yet. 
Uh, it could have been in Iceland. There's theories about it being in the tropics. It, 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 it's a very common and popular uh, subject for researchers who want to publish something. They come up with a new idea of where it might have been. Uh, and the ideas are all over the place. But that goes to show how big an event it was. Because it's not like some part of the world was destroyed and other parts had a small effect from it. This really was globally devastating. Uh, but agricultural failures as a result of this uh, led to the world shifting around. Not, not, I don't mean the, the crust, I mean the people on the earth uh, had to migrate. Places that were fertile became infertile and they had to find new places and there were wars and migrations. Agricultural failures might have directly led to the abandonment of Teotihuacan by the original inhabitants, the increased food supply in the Arabian Peninsula, and strain on the Eastern Roman Empire led to easing the Muslim conquests of the Levant, Egypt, and Persia because they were better supplied. Um, it contributed to the migrations of the Lombards and Slavs into Roman territory in Italy and the Balkans. It may have been an explanation for the deposition of hordes of gold by Scandinavian elites at the end of the migration period and uh, linked to that. Uh, it, it was possibly a sacrifice to appease the gods and mythological events such as Fimble Winter and Ragnarok may be based on the cultural memory of this event. Oh, I'm wow. sorry, what, what is Thimble Winter? Because that sounds fucking <laughs> adorable. Uh, that but it's exceeds probably not. my research on the subject. I didn't look into Fimble Winter. Oh, Thimble thim winter. it's not Thimble Winter? With an F. Oh, okay, because that sounds like a thimble. gnome surname. I'm also calling that for my gnome character's name. Thimble Hi, my winter. name is Ragnarok Fimble Winter, and I'm definitely not going to bring about the apocalypse. <laughs> So, in 1816, um, why did I, sorry, I, I wrote something weird and, okay. What did you write? I wrote, okay, I know what I wrote now. <laughs> what did you write? <laughs> 1300 years later. <laughs> okay, but I like, wrote it out phonetically bit. to remind me to do the joke, and then I didn't know what I wrote, so the joke. SpongeBob, our first SpongeBob <laughs> reference. I think the joke yeah. is much better now that you explained it and messed it up. 1300 years later. Okay. <laughs> so 1,300 years later, in the early 19th century, the world experienced the year without a summer, otherwise known as the poverty year and 1,800 and froze to death. <laughs> uh, average global temperatures decreased by about one degree Fahrenheit. Burr. And <laughs> oh, call back to, to Burr. Wow, that's you're right on the, the callback game. Your references are off the hook. Ring, ring. Uh, Guess you just called back. It's mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, summer temperatures in Europe were the coldest on record between 1766 and 2000. Wow. Uh, and there were major food shortages all across the northern hemisphere, mostly. Uh, and the cause of this is historical. The cause of this was documented as an April 5th, 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora uh, in modern-day Indonesia. Uh, it's basically, it's a mountain and an island and the, uh, uh, the, the village of Tambora. It's, it's all one thing. Uh, on April 15th, it exploded. Uh, more explosions over the next few days, intensifying until April 11th. So six days later, when the whole mountain was turned into a flowing mass of liquid fire. 
liquid fire in quotes, uh, and a historian documented it as such. Um, pumice stones, uh, molten flaming uh, of up to eight inches in diameter were raining down, followed by ash. Pyroclastic flows cascaded down the mountain to the sea on all sides, wiped out the entire island, wow. wiped out the entire village. Uh, some ten to 12,000 inhabitants oh. just completely gone. Uh, the mountain itself lost 4,746 feet of elevation. So it, it was a 14,000-foot mountain. It became a 93, 54-foot mountain. Wow. So almost a mile of vertical Holy cap cow. got blown off, blown melted, yeah. uh, otherwise ejected. And the mountain was a mile shorter than it was before, wow. almost. The largest observed eruption in history, making it the second largest eruption in history. Behind because the one, one was observed. you told us about. Wow. And, 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 and you know, since the, uh, the, the name of the, the late antique Little Ice Age, uh, <laughs> since that, this was the largest eruption and, and still a, is the second largest. Um, I have a question. Sure. Um, did you guys, like in my childhood, and you didn't tell me, there was some sort of explosion that caused me to lose about a mile of height, and that's why I'm so short, or is there something like that we didn't really cover? No, not in your childhood. Uh, but in my childhood, when I was six, uh, Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington State. And I lived, I grew up in Los Angeles, a thousand miles south of that. That explosion was violent enough to blow the entire side off the mountain and ash fell down on me in Los Angeles, a thousand miles away. (gasps) That explosion uh, ejected a quarter of a cubic mile of ejecta from the mountain. This one at Mount Tambora was 76 times as much ejecta. Wow. 19 cubic miles of Whoa. rock became uh, lava, ash, uh, and, uh, and tephra. And uh, what? Tephra, T-E-P-H-R-A, which is a, uh, it's not a specifically um, aggregated mineral, like you can say tephra is this percent of this, but it has... Uh, it has sulfates in it, a sulfur oxide, and it's it's basically it's rock that comes out of a volcano. It's called tephra, and sometimes it falls, sometimes it's just atomized, it's just powderized. And this from Mount Tambora was ejected so far up that it it uh, hit the stratosphere above the cloud line. Oh my god! And when that happens, rain does not wash it out anymore. So it's just up there until such a time when these tiny particles finally settle down. And that can and does take a decade sometimes. What? what? That's bananas. I never heard of that. No. I'm also still marveling over the fact that ejecta is a word. Like ejecta is just something that is ejected. I love it. Yeah. And I'm going to start <laughs> using back formations to create words like that out of other words. Like... I just threw you a thrower. It, it's a ball. <laughs> but I'm calling it a thrower now. It's, it's like, you know, in your car, you might have an ejecta seat. No, boo, dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So in Europe, uh, times were very grim. Um, there were already previous eruptions that, that limited crop yields, uh, and the Napoleonic Wars limited labor because so many men were dead. And food shortages, they were building off of that, and they worsened after Tambora. And, and they hit low temperatures, heavy rains, washing things out, flooding things, and crops were failing. Prices rose due to scarcity, uh, and they had to ship long distance sometimes. Uh, so things were scarce, not much to go around, and what is going around is very expensive. So poor people really didn't have much. There was a lot of famine and death leading to demonstrations, riots, arson, and looting all across Europe. Uh. It was the highest levels of violence since the French Revolution, uh, which admittedly was only, it finished 17 years prior to this. And here's Mary Shelley uh, just like walking around the graveyard, like hanging out, like reading a book on the grave while, <laughs> while there's, you know, the, the famine and the ash and the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But malnourishment and famine uh, in turn triggered uh, typhus epidemics and that killed more people. Uh, huge storms, abnormal rainfall, flooding of Europe's major rivers, including the Rhine, which we'll get back to. Uh, uh, there was frost in August. Um, and brown and red snow. And uh, the, the colors, uh, the snow colors, the sky color, things were, things, the world was different because of this tephra up in the, in the stratosphere. Um, it was the romantic period of painting. Here's another, another uh, instance where I'm going to greatly simplify something very complex and people can argue with me. Uh, but let's just pretend that the romantic period of painting is summed up as generally realistic depictions of the world intended to convey emotion. Uh, and the focus is on the emotion. The style tends to be pretty realistic. And so the colors are realistic. You can compare paintings by the same artist before and after the volcanic event and see the colors changing. This is the same eye, the same judgment, the same style of painting. And there's bright greens and blues and white clouds. And there's people swimming and playing in an afternoon picnic. And then afterward, lots of browns and yellows and reds and themes that touch on religion, industry, darkness, dread, right. uncertainty and despair. Uh, and that lasted for years. It, it was a, it's a, a period of... The romantic period. It's like a sub-period of it that looks different than it did and feels different than it did right before this. What year did this happen again? This was in 1815. Okay, so 1814 is when Percy Shelley like came to visit and they fell in love. So it's just like right after that, this happens. Yeah. Um, let's get to... Um, General influence around the world, okay? So in China, in, in part because of, of lack of food, poverty was everywhere. People were fighting to stay alive and people are in despair. Sometimes when people are in despair, they turn to substances to make them feel better. And this was the rise of the opium trade in China. Wow. A lot um, of them will come back in this story for sure. Um, and, and in addition to the typhus and outbreak of cholera, uh, all over the world, killed millions. Uh, but at the same time, the research into the cholera, this 
was the right time for that to happen. It, it formed the basis of modern medicine and how we deal with diseases now. In Germany, in, uh, in 1817, in Karlsruhe-Baden, Germany, um, the Rhine had overflowed, uh, very little sunlight, poor conditions, and oats are not growing. But they're heavily dependent on horses, and the horses eat the oats. They can't feed the horses. Uh, there are horse famines, and they're dying, and they relied on the horses for transportation. And a man named Carl Dreis invented a machine called the Velocipede. Hmm. Uh, a, a pede from foot, you know, Velocipede, yeah. a, a fast foot, basically. I guess that, that's what that is, or, or foot speed. Uh, it had two wheels and a seat and handlebars that could steer the front wheel. Bicycle. Yeah, without pedals, without brakes. You just, you use your feet. You, you reach down with your feet and you push off the ground and you go, and then you drag your feet on the ground to stop. So both goth, the goth um, aesthetic and bicycles were invented <laughs> yeah. because of this. Yeah. Um, but it didn't have shocks. So when you drive it on carriage paths, it's all bumpy and it wasn't practical. But then when it was on streets, it went too fast <laughs> and was thought to be a danger and was banned in Germany, Great Britain, the U.S., and Calcutta, which shows how popular it was and how far-reaching it got before it was banned. Um uh, and now we have bicycles. Now we have brakes and shocks and <laughs> pedals and stuff. Um, yeah, mom's up there on her electric bike going like 30 freaking miles per hour and menace <laughs> on wheels. They would have hated her back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just 65 miles north of there uh, in Darmstadt, Justice von Liebig was a teenager living through this. And he was inspired to go on to introduce mineral fertilizers to the world. Uh, to help with crop yields. The other direction, less than 300 miles south, in 1816, Lord Byron, Claire Claremont, Dr. John William Polidori, Percy Shelley, and Mary Godwin took a trip to Lake Geneva. Uh, while they were there, the, uh, the gloom and relentless rain kept them from doing their normal vacation activities, so they couldn't go outside much, and all they had to do was gather at the house that Byron was renting, Villa Diodati. Uh, and so at this point in the story, I'm going to hand off to Zoe, who knows what happened after they were cooped up in this house. All right. I want like some really cool like heist intro music where we're like, we're about to introduce a, a cast of kooky characters. There we go. All right. First up, uh, the only person in this story that we are legally allowed to call a hoe is... The man himself, Lord Byron, <laughs> just separated scandalously from his wife, fleeing England amidst um, accusations of possible incestuous affairs with his half-sister, Augusta Lee. Um, they shared a father, Mad My Jack face right Byron. Now is like... It's a very negative-looking <laughs> face. Okay. Um, Lady Byron had the, the wife... Uh, who's a ma mathematician, very cool, uh, the mother of Ada Lovelace with Lord Snaps Byron. to Ada Lovelace. Um, she had these journals that she wrote that she suspected uh, that they were having, he was having an affair with his half-sister, and those were posthumously published by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Oh, go for um, it. Everybody's part of this story. <laughs> yeah. Um, he rolls up in a replica, purportedly, of Napoleon's coach, <laughs> with a peacock, a monkey, a dog, and his personal physician, John Polidori. Okay, I'm just saying, like, there's a little scale, right? 
And on one <laughs> side of this scale is like Lord Byron and this peacock and this monkey and the, the carriage, you know, and it's like, ah, uh, then on the other side, it's like, but maybe you had sex with your sister. Lord Byron was off the fucking rails, as you will discover in this story. I can't if you wait. didn't already know. Uh, yeah, with him, he brought his personal physician, John Dr. John Polidori, who John also- Dr. John Polidori. <laughs> John, John Dr. John. Um, and he also had inclinations to be a writer, uh, but he was, um, at the start of this, he, he hung out with Byron a lot as his personal physician, but also like going to parties with him and stuff. And uh, while he wanted to be a writer, he was often ridiculed by Byron uh, amongst, you know, fine company for Aww. his sophomoric attempts at writing. Poor John, Dr. John. Yeah, so John Dr. John lived in Byron's shadow, but he rolled up with him in May of 1816 to Villa Diodati in Switzerland off Lake Geneva. Um, who catches word of this? None other but Claire Claremont, 18 years old, uh, stepsister of Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin at the time, yeah. not Mary Shelley until later that year. They're both 18. Mary has a four-month-old baby. Claire Claremont is pregnant with Lord Byron's baby. She had been Byron's lover. Also, probably slash possibly Percy Shelley's. It's debated. Um, it was debated at the time and continues to be. But, well, she decided that I'm pregnant with this dude's baby. He's not talking to me let's get a vacation house right by their vacation house <laughs> and go make this like a party. <laughs> this girl, Claire, is a controversial figure in this story. She's portrayed as kind of like a crazy woman. So I'm guessing she wasn't. Yeah. Uh, because that's how it usually wasn't. goes. Yeah. The whole story of her is she like, she was originally named Jane, but she wanted to change her name to something more romantic. So she changed it to Claire Claremont and she uh she went with mary when they ran when she ran away with percy shelley she loved reading uh she was actually better educated than mary shelley because her mother married mary shelley's father and she got sent to a fancy boarding school so like she was fluent in french and mary's read, all so just like read... reading on a gravestone <laughs> <laughs> well claire claremont was pretty intense as well she loved king lear she like read she said that she was so stirred by cordelia that she had quote unquote one of her horrors um she and she went around having apparently hysterical fits like a lot and she and mary shelley would like do that with each other they would try to freak each other out by like sharing visions and then like have hysteria together and like intense nightmares I mean, that awesome. like teenage them. girls yeah 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 they're both 18 so claire mary shelley i feel like and... you and your friends were having some hysteria sometimes <laughs> for sure yeah i mean just normal teenage girl stuff um so they except went for they're percy pregnant shelley with right famous pregnant. poets children so they and percy shelley go and they rent a house right nearby the maison chapouis <laughs> chapouis it's, you know what, we're going to roll with that pronunciation. They were adjacent summer houses four miles north of Lake Geneva. They roll up there and 
Mary, we have a lot of her journals from that time. So she thought it was beautiful. Like the the blue of the water was intensely beautiful and uh, apparently inspired some of the scenes in Frankenstein where she was writing about the, the beautiful blue of the water of the lake. Then they get there to this lovely summer place and, well, it's May, and they are trapped inside by this year with no summer and they have to spend three days in the house so they're all of them go to byron's villa and there are already some very weird relationships going on between them dr john dr john oh no it's expanded excuse dr. me dr john is dr. my middle john. name <laughs> mr polidori um is a he didn't per- spend four years in medical school to be called mr <laughs> yeah get it right he, he spent eight years, so he could be called doctor twice. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. John, doctor. Sorry. Dr. John, Dr. John, Mr. Polidori. He was in love, or at least pining over, Mary Shelley, who, although not married to Percy, was, you know, had his child. They were a couple. Um, Polidori was not getting any, but he, everyone, I guess, knew that he was into her. And... Byron is there, confronted by now the woman who's pregnant with his child. Woman is a strong term. She was 18. And here's what he wrote about her at the time. Uh, I found her with Shelley and her sister at Geneva. I never loved her nor pretended to love her, but a man is a man. And if a girl of 18 comes prancing to you at all hours of the night, there is but one way. <laughs> oh, man. So they rekindle <sighs> their affair. Well, what are you going to do? On account of the prancing. I mean, there is but one way. Yeah, the story goes that he was like, no, I fucking hate you. And then he had she did a little prance. (laughs) Yeah, and then she pranced. And he was like, well, what you going to do about it? We're stuck inside. But what they did do about it was, right, so all of this kind of like debauchery. That's when he wrote Baby It's Cold Outside, right? Byron proposes a challenge. They are stuck in this villa, and they've all been reading Phantasmagoriana, which is this compendium of German ghost stories that were translated into French, which is, I'm going to break in here and say, this is why I think it's so interesting that you said the movie had German film influences because Frankenstein, the book, was influenced by these German ghost stories they were reading. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And I, I, and I, I appreciate how uh, you're talking and then you're like, and I'm going to break in here <laughs> as if you're breaking into something. Uh, pardon me. Let me interrupt myself <laughs> for a moment, please. Uh, no, but you can talk again. Okay, thank you. So Byron's challenge was that they write, they all try to write a ghost story that was better than the ones that they just read in Fatan's Phantasmagoriana, which is a Phantasmagoriana is the name of my Evanescence cover band. (laughs) (laughs) So Byron writes, uh, the prisoner of Chion, Chion, C-H-I-L-L-O-N. 
Um, and he writes the third canto of his, uh, like, long, I don't know if it's technically considered an epic poem or not, but Child Harold's Pilgrimage. He writes those while they're there. Percy Shelley writes a poem called Hymn to Intellectual Beauty. Uh, um, and the dark horse, Mr. Dr. John, Dr. John Polidori, writes The Vampire. Uh, based on an idea, a short story that Byron writes and then discards, Polidori is like, I am going to write the first ever vampire novel. I mean, he probably wasn't thinking that when he wrote it, but this was this was the beginning of vampire literature, and he is the most unknown name of, you know, Byron... Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, but part of that is because when The Vampire got published later, it was published mistakenly under Byron's name, um, which really added to the resentment of like always being in Byron's shadow. It uh, may have sold the book better, though. Well, Byron was like, I didn't write it. It was all him. He was a little bit disparaging towards it. It was like, I'm not, I definitely did not write that. Don't go around saying I wrote that. Um, and... Paul Dory's name kind of gets dragged through the mud in this, which is, I can't fathom how any of that is his fault. Uh, but he, I'll, I'll table that and get back to what happens to him um, when I do my little, like, where are they now? Dead. <laughs> They're all dead. But, <laughs> but Mary Shelley writes, drumroll please. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Woot woot. I knew uh, that one. <laughs> it's told that they were having lots of wine. They were doing laudanum. And she had a dream she had, or a nightmare um, that inspired her. And also she had been hearing there had been conversations in the house about uh, galvanism. And that conjured the ideas of reanimation. And clearly all this other stuff that we were talking about. Um, she was already very invested in the macabre. Uh, Percy Shelley also was said to have had a nightmare in which Mary sprouted demonic eyes where her nipples should be, but that one did not turn into <laughs> uh, a famous novel. So like we're going to table that. Maybe that's in a Ken Russell movie. <laughs> and what's the point? You don't even increase your field of vision. Like eyes in the back of your head, I can get. <laughs> eyes on your shirt. Under your shirt. Where your nipples would be, but... On your back. Yes, where my no, back nipples are. I mean, in I don't have the, those. I'm cutting all this. <laughs> <laughs> you keep saying that, but then you don't cut the thing. I'm cutting back in, nipples for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so in the foreword to, I don't know if it was the original release of the book or the one right after, uh, she wrote in the introduction, her dream, she said, I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life. Claire Claremont did not write a book, uh, or she was, she actually liked writing and thought about being, you know, delving into literary pursuits, but she said, uh, in our family, if you cannot write an epic or novel that by its originality knocks all other novels on the head, you are a despicable creature not worth acknowledging. <laughs> Wow. Our family is not like that. We <laughs> because do we all stuff do all just... <laughs> right now we're talking about other people's works. You can really just put out anything in this family. We encourage it. 
she clearly had a lot of insecurity there. Maybe it was true. Um, there was so there's this idea that when John Polidori wrote The Vampire about this monster that sucks the life out of you, that he might have really been writing inspired by Lord Byron. And that when Mary Shelley wrote about Frankenstein and Dr. Frankenstein and this narcissistic intellectual who will love you and then neglect you, she was talking about Percy. One note about I'm kind of really interested in Mr. Dr. John um, because he is one of the people I didn't know as much about before doing this research, but apparently he did his thesis when he got his doctorate at Edinburgh, which he got at age 19. Um, it was on somnambulism. So they were all goth as hell. Um, he was also the uncle of the painter Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who's a pre-Raphaelite. Um, I know of him because uh, through The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, a play that I was in that referenced it a lot. So this guy was pretty cool. This yeah, Dr. This John Dr. Cool. Palmadary was cool. Right. So they all write these things, and that is in 1816. So Mary Shelley marries Percy and becomes Mary Shelley later that year. Uh, Claire Claremont soon has her child that Byron is the father of. Uh, Frankenstein gets published not long after. In 1821, Dr. John Polidori commits suicide, uh, probably by cyanide. Um, people didn't rule it as a suicide at the time, but we know now that it was. The next year, in 1822, Percy Shelley drowns in a freak storm. Also that year, in 1822... Well, let's backtrack. The daughter that Claire Claremont has with Byron, her name is Allegra, and she Byron gets custody of the child pretty quickly, uh, and Claire is allowed, uh, quote-unquote, a few brief visits with her daughter. And then Byron sends her off to a convent in Italy, and Claire is super mad because she's like, we agreed that... our daughter would never have to be apart from one of her parents. Um, and he and she thought that the convent was like really equality and that uh, it was like unhealthy and the education was really bad. He sends the daughter anyways. And she but she decides to try to kidnap her daughter from the convent and asks Percy Shelley to forge uh, a letter from Byron saying that it's OK for Allegra to leave with her, and Percy Shelley's like, no. Then in May, or sorry, in March of 1822, so the same year that Percy Shelley dies, this five-year-old daughter, Allegra, dies at the convent, probably from typhus, wow. either typhus or malarial type of fever. Um, wow, and, and the typhus and possibly the right. freak storm. Now that those all could have been influenced by the volcano. Right. I was thinking about that when you said that like typhus was on the rise. Claire never forgives him, is very mad at him for the rest of her life. Um, but 
he dies, Byron dies two years later in 1824 after a fever. Do you so have the, within, the other information? Because um, if you don't, I do it about all the other about people. Byron's death? No, like the other people in Mary's life that died. No, go right ahead. Well, after they're at the villa, they go back to England and Percy's wife kills herself in October. And then in December, uh, Mary Shelley's older sister kills herself, Franny Emley. Yeah. And then when they're on this trip that they were talking about before Percy dies in this boating accident, when they're going around Italy, the baby William that Mary uh, gave birth to before going to Italy, and then the child that was born after that, they both die. Both? Yes. Both of her children die. And at one point, Percy Shelley said, I hope he didn't say this in a blamey way, but it was like, I've been with you for five years, and it's been the worst five years of my life. Which I think he's saying that like all of our children die and all yeah. like people we know are dying. Like it's a terrible time. They had one surviving child and uh, okay. Percy Florence, he was named. Yeah, between 1821 and 1824, every man that was there is dead uh, and Claire's baby. Mary and Claire are the only ones to live past 50 years old and uh Claire lives the longest of any of them, which I'm not saying is, it's definitely, this is all a tragedy, but also they painted her as like the crazy woman for wanting to be with Byron. Like that was how Claire, all the sources I was looking at talked about her was that she was just like this crazy teenage chick who's like obsessed with him and wouldn't leave him alone. And I'm like, she was a teenager pregnant with his baby. So if she gets to live the longest, good for her. Also, if know? he had left her alone, then she wouldn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, and then he stole her baby away from her and sent it off, and then she couldn't see it, and then the baby died. So, yeah. Claire Claremont is one of the tragic heroes of this story, in my opinion. Okay, does this story pick Even up at all? Does it become writer. happy in any way? Well, then, uh, you know, Mary Shelley has... Uh, the first <laughs> sci-fi novel, um, I, and it becomes a really good movie. Yeah, I have some happy news. What? Mary Shelley was maybe bisexual. Ooh. That would be happy happy news. Yeah. So I don't know why I made a creepy noise, but <laughs> it's like, oh, the ghost. <laughs> no, it's fair. She's, she's goth. After she, uh, Percy Shelley died, uh, Mary wrote to a friend about her loneliness. Uh, she said, I was so ready to give myself away, and being afraid of men, I was apt to get towsy mousy for women. Well, that that's pretty conclusive. Towsy mousy. I love getting towsy mousy with women. Yeah, there's the woman. There's a specific woman named Jane Williams that Percy was also probably. I'm trying to think of. I was. I first thought sticking it too. But that's not very nice. <laughs> sticking it in. Okay. And her husband, James Williams' husband, uh, died with Percy in the boating accident. And so then wow. Jane and Mary were, like, left together. And Mary also, if not bisexual, although if you look up on lists of bisexual people, she's often on that list. I think Byron is as well, right? Probably. She's at least a friend because she helped finance a lot of different feminist causes. And one was she gave money to a lesbian couple and helped one of them establish an identity as a man so they could live 
oh, as a couple. Amazing. Yeah. I would say the the happy parts of the story are also always just in this undercurrent of darkness because, you know, the parts where it's like, woo, wine, laudanum, free love, we're atheists and we're like super intellectual and isn't it cool? Like we hang out in cemeteries and romantic era and we write amazing works. And I mean, like Percy Shelley, like influence Yates and all, all this stuff we love. But I think probably their vision of a world was beautiful but i i do feel like their lives while they wanted to be romantics i think they might have been romantic to them but looking back on it are quite sad yeah it seems very difficult i think maybe romantic and sad are not so far apart i think a lot of the romantic uh art was was based on whatever the strongest emotions are in sadness grief uh it can be right up there so what do we think is the movie frankenstein at its heart a romantic movie i think it is i think it tries to portray the situation the premise that it's given realistically with the emotions with yeah with the emotions and they did a lot of show not tell and you know what some people hated this movie so it was it was censored really heavily it was banned in Kansas because it showed "quote unquote" cruelty and tended to debase morals. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I did that. It, <laughs> it was. I mean, people kind of flipped out, which I think it, there's just so many interesting parallels between the movie and the book, and like the the way it changed the, the German influence, the way it changed the genre, or like existed in as a foundational text of a genre that didn't exist in that form and, yet. And uh, Possible, okay. yeah, LGBT. Yep. I have two just like cute funny facts if we want to lighten the mood a little. So Boris Karloff's costume weighed 48 pounds. Oh. Um, his shoes were like this fancy kind of shoes that were like 12 pounds each or something. Fancy really and heavy. Oh, that makes sense. Them. You can see yeah. that when he walks. I think you would like this, Zoe, that um, after all the long hours and like dangerous conditions that Boris Karloff had to live through on the set of Frankenstein, he got behind a new movement to unionize the screen actors. And he was one of the founding members. I think he was number nine or 10 founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. And their meeting was, they, they met secretly in Boris Karloff's garage. Oh, SAG Astro started in Boris, Boris Karloff's garage. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's our true events that inspired this wonderful book and this wonderful movie. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, we have a giveaway going on that we told people if they leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts that we will do a little film fam treatment of their movie. And our first reviewer had left this review before we had advertised about the giveaway. So they got in touch with us and told us the movie they want us to talk about. Zoe, can you say the movie? The movie is Elf. Elf. Let us tell you the true story behind the movie Elf. Uh, I know this one. Yeah, okay, luckily, I yeah I did this research to find out the true story behind the movie Elf. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually really uh, a true story of a little boy who saw his mama kissing Santa Claus, and he thought, Mommy only kisses Daddy. What if Santa is my real dad. Yeah. 
So he follows Santa and mommy back up to mommy and daddy's room and he sees Santa remove the white beard and oh my gosh, it is daddy. But instead of thinking that his father was dressed up as Santa, this little boy thought Santa was just pretending to be a regular guy and that his father really was Santa. Yeah, no, but it's that makes sense. It's it's darker than that because the parents didn't approve, and uh, and he he didn't tell the rest of the family this. But uh, one night, you know, he's out delivering presents and stuff. He veers, he plans this out in advance, runs over the grandma with a reindeer. That yes, oh, that, that is, is dark. that is dark part of. But this this little boy, he spends the whole next year trying to keep his father's secret, but also trying to let Daddy Santa know that, like, Daddy Santa? Santa Daddy? What, what do you think? Oh, uh, I think it's it's uh, uh, Daddy Santa Daddy. Daddy Santa Daddy. <laughs> let him know that he, he, like, definitely approved of this new development in their family life. Like, he's like, oh, my dad is Santa. Imagine all the presents, all the cookies, flying on reindeers. He's really into it. And the boy really, he wants to embrace his heritage as the son of Santa, so, like, he starts wearing a lot of, like, red and green and, like, a big belt. He just, he's wanted to let his dad know, like, we're not talking about it. I get it, but I'm here with you. You know, I'm your, I'm your elf child. So he says he just always wants, like, cookies and milk for dinner because he thought that was, like, Santa's main food group. He's correct. He spends every afternoon, like, coming, after he comes home from school, like, cutting out little paper snowflakes and stuff. And, like, he's always singing Christmas carols. And this goes on like through like January and February and into spring. By like the end of the school year, he's told all the kids in his class that he's written their names on a list and he's going to be watching them. Yeah. This is where things start to get really out of hand. By Halloween, he tells his mom, I want to go trick-or-treating as all 12 days of Christmas. (laughs) And it it inspired not only the movie Elf, but um, I'll be watching you by the police. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's Yeah, it's both inspired by the same true event. Yeah. So then the holiday season comes around and his mom says, I'm going to take you to the mall to sit on Santa's lap. And the boy's like, this is it. This is when dad, daddy, Santa, daddy is going to reveal to me his true identity. We're going to so scared of where this is we're going to move to the North Pole. Oh, you know where it's going, though, because he gets there and he it's not dad, Santa, daddy. And that's the scene, the scene from Elf. That's where they got that from. He says, you sit on a throne of lies. And then he fights Did it him. also inspire that scene in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> where he bites Santa in the face? I thought you were going to say it was Uncle did Santa you, Daddy. Did you fuck my mom? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a, I have a uh, behind the scenes uh, fact from that. So so in the when they were filming Elf, uh, Will Ferrell was like really decided to be very method, right? So he, for uh, God, they were filming it for you know, like 10 months, and he only every day wore the elf suit. He did not wear any other clothes, even in his normal life. It was because <laughs> he was like, I really need to, I, I need to get into the character. He only hung out with people like a lot smaller he than He went him to the North Pole and lived as an elf. <laughs> yeah, and he was really cold because he like swore to only wear that, wear that outfit. And he was like, oh God, I'm like, sure, like he got pneumonia, but he was committed to the craft and thus elf was made. Yes, that... <laughs> He only ate pasta with maple syrup. (laughs) Well, that was based on this kid who only wanted to eat cookies and stuff, you know, that that's right. Farrell was like, I need to get into the mind of this real kid. Yeah, he he was going to interview him and everything. But the kid was like in jail by then. It was a whole (laughs) 
There's no shoe. I wasn't going to talk about that. I didn't want to out this little kid and all the stuff that happened. This has been. (laughs) We're not using real names. We're not using this real name. (laughs) So uh, thank you for writing us a review. We do have some more and we'll be uh, giving these little uh, based on true events. Absolute bullshit. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah. Completely real things that we just said. We'll be doing more of those. Zoe, do you have a song for us this week? Yes, I do. I wrote a song. It is uh, from the point of view of Frankenstein's monster or the creature, as I like to affectionately call him. Creechy. Mr. Creech. And it encompasses some of the stuff from the book, which means like stuff from Bride of Frankenstein. So if you need an incentive to go watch that one as well, I would highly recommend it. That'll be playing right after this. Like Film Fam, inspired by true events. Subscribe to hear more stories that inspired our favorite films. For photos and links from the show and other shenanigans, follow us at Instagram at FilmFamPodcast, on Twitter at FilmFam underscore podcast, and on Facebook at FilmFam Inspired by True Events. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or films whose inspiration you would like us to explore, you can email us at FilmFamPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye. 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 I wasn't afraid of fire until I tasted it down my throat. I wasn't afraid to drown until I learned what doesn't float. And nobody told me that flesh can be so heavy. And nobody told me in search of God.